Resiliency was a topic that we just for two, three years ago, before COVID, didn't really talk too much about. We didn't talk about, do I live a resiliency life? Do we have a resiliency policy in my city? Do I, as a private sector company, have a resiliency way of organizing and running my company? This is what we learned under COVID, that we were not resilient. Cities was not resilient. Companies were not resilient. Families was not resilient. Nobody was resilient to deal with the COVID situation, right? So now we need to make sure that anything we do going forward, where we now build a new world around renewable or with the whole thing about um, uh, coming out of COVID, whatever thing it is around the 17 global goals, it always needs to be together with resiliency. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Hello, Anne. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. So glad to have you here with us again. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back, especially here after a very successful completion of COP26. And that's the first thing I wanted to ask you about. I know the last time you were with us, it was about six months ago, and you were seeing a lot of positive momentum heading into COP26. So now that it's concluded, I'm really curious, how do you see things coming out of it? You sound like you still have that upbeat optimism. Yes. So first of all, the race up to COP26 has been amazing. Um, first of all, uh, more than 30,000 people were gathered in Glasgow and Every single person coming to Glasgow, it was personally, it was for sure, it was not just like, I'm going because I need to go. Everybody had a mission to go to COP. And you had an amazing mix of, of course, government, cities, mayors, the private sector, academia, youth, startup accelerators, and the whole investment world was there. And there was a very strong people voice in it. So I would say it was a historical moment, what we also was hoping for, that it should be. But when you are in it and you experience it, it was the biggest thing that I've ever been at. And I will also say it's like that we all got a second chance. You know, the world got a second chance. And we were there to speak about the next big challenge of the world, which is the climate the race to net zero. And, and it, it was also exciting to see how we, you know, we have gone through a very difficult time, but we as human being, we are ready now to really go and battle the climate crisis. And so we have that capacity in us. So very grateful, a very special moment to be at COP26. And you paint a really interesting picture in that, you know, often when we see things like COP26 on the news, the focus is on the government leaders and the negotiations and the politics. But in what you were just describing, there's this picture of so many other people being drawn to the event. Could you paint that picture in a little bit more for those of us that weren't there to kind of understand who are these other people that come? What's drawing them? How are they participating? So what is happening now, and it actually did start before COP and before uh, COVID, is that when you have huge UN events or when you have the World Economic Forum that is that is also coming up soon, you begin to have this whole, what we call the on, in this case, it was the, the on-COP or at Davos, it's the on-Davos, where you can say you have the official program, but you also have the program that is happening outside at the same time. 
And this is where uh, you see a mix of people because we, we can all agree on the world that we are building is a world that needs to be built by all voices in a diverse setting. And this is why when I said before that people who decided to come to COP, that was a personal decision. And to build a better world now and solve the big climate issues and, and work with a more, much more resilient mindset, this can only happen in a strong public-private partnership setting. So when you saw, for example, cities coming to COP, yes, they were part of the blue and green zone, which was the official program. But then outside, uh, I was part of running the Woodhouse together with Wood PLC that I worked for. And uh, we had more than uh, 100 events. It was two weeks, right? It was incredible, two weeks, 100 events. We had more than 250 partners. We had more than uh, 250 plus speakers in the house. It was from morning to evening. And there were many houses like this. There was the, the Gold House. There was houses like this outside, both in Glasgow and in Edinburgh. And when you saw the conversations, it, it went from, you know, cities speaking about resiliency to coming in with, with mind-blowing innovation on the technology side for the race to net zero. You had uh, the marches on the streets with the youth. You know, you had all voices from the world. I mean, there were so many nationalities coming to COP. And, and you can say, often when you go to an event like this, you might have a role inside the official program, but you also have an, a role outside. And that's where you see when people are planning to go to an event like this, that you might be just part of the official on DAVAS, on COP program, or you might be a mix of also the official program, but it do attract everybody around the world to come in. And this is needed if you want to build a better world, right? Right. And you had said with all these people gathering that coming out of it, it felt like there was, I believe you said a second chance. So what do you see the second chance for? Like, what are the next steps coming out of COP26? So what is fascinating by us as human being is that we have all gone through COVID that's and are still going through COVID, which was very personal to every single person in the world. We all been in an uncertain time where nobody knew how would the end look like, right? But we as people, we have a way of, of working with this survival. You know, we, we fight. Uh, it's been tough for everybody around the world. And when I talk about we got a second chance is that the fact that 30,000 plus people came to COP in Glasgow at a time where we just like one, two, three, four, five months before, one year before, were not able to go anywhere, right? And we came and we are now in this new fighting mode to go in and fight for the climate. Uh, what I mean by the second chance is that we went out of our houses, we went out with new capacity to go and not just fight the issue around COVID and health, but we are fighting now the issue about the climate crisis. And I think this is the beautiful thing about human being that we have that in us. And so there was a lot of reflection. I would say COP was a one big also reunion. People, there were so many people who haven't seen each other for two years, right? And they saw each other and there's a very big global purpose community that came together and, and spoke about the next big issues of the world. And I think for me, that is a moment that will go into history because you could say 
normally when you go, there have been many cops before, right? But there's never been a cop before, you know, in the end of a COVID situation, right? And this is the, and I think that is so unique about us as people that we, we went despite that we're still in a post-COVID world because we know the climate crisis is an equal big issue for the human being, right? So we need to go and find solutions. So I think that's where I talk about, the, you know, it's personally, it's, it's, it's the way we as human being are, that we come together and we work together. And you can really see the results of that over the past couple of years. When you look at, you know, feels like over the past couple of years, ESG investing has really entered the mainstream, that you have conversations happening, net zero commitments being made by corporations that four or five years ago, people wouldn't expect would ever have made those types of commitments. So I can understand the enthusiasm and the passion and feeling like, you know, we're moving this ball forward. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you've worked with many companies. You know, it seems that the focus right now to a large degree in terms of, you know, corporate involvement is on carbon and net zero. And there's often a, a remark that's kind of bandied about that, you know, in terms of ESG, it's really all about the E. It's really all about environment and energy. Is that fair? And do you see carbon as potentially creating a model or a pathway or a framework that, you know, it's almost like the tip of the spear and the way we deal with carbon and net zero might create a model or a pathway that we can follow for some of the other sustainable development goals. I would like to reply um, in two ways to this. Uh, the first part I want to say is that COP really showed us that when you speak about net zero, even though a big portion of that conversation is around the energy sector and how we're digitalizing the energy sector now, but all industries was represented at COP. Every single industry was there. And COP was not just a conversation about the energy sector and about, uh, you know, how can we digitalize it or how can we really build a much better renewable world. It was fascinating to see that how, and, and, and it kind of, for me, paint a picture of the second question you had about the model, because the first two days where we had more than 100 plus world leaders in Glasgow in person, it was around how do we build a better world across all the 17 global goals, right? That was the first two days conversation. And then the third one, which was fascinating, and this is, has not happened often before, it was all about the financing. How do we reshuffle the whole investing how do we realign capital into a sustainable world? And that is where you saw the whole investment world. So the first two days was the world leaders. The third day, you saw the investment world, the family offices, the you know pension funds, you know banks, you know, the whole investment talking about how can we realign so we can begin to invest into the right things and for the sustainability goals. And then first, the fourth day, it was about uh, renewable. It was about the energy sector. It was about how do we work around the fossil fuel issue? How do we work around the issue around cold? How do we make sure that we, when we build a new energy sector, uh, which I loved about the agenda and which for me is definitely a model, that we build something that is affordable, scalable, and accessible 
for everybody in the world. Because it, it's not good enough that you just build a new energy platform for countries who can afford it, right? Because that's not going to solve the big issues. And that's why there's a huge learning coming out of COVID because COVID learners that it's first the day that you have solved the issue around COVID in every single country around the world and every single city and every single spot in the world that you are able to go into the post-COVID world, right? The same thing has it with climate. It's not enough that you just fix the, the whole thing about fossil fuel, that you fix that in part of the world. You need to solve it all over the world. So that was the fourth day. And then you kind of think, but then what happened on the fifth day? Because you had the world leaders, you had the, the money market, and then you had like the real the capital for new worlds, and then you had the energy sector. No, then it kind of turned around and then it became about nature. And it become about the whole ocean issue and the plastic issue and the nature and deforestation. That was the that was the, the next two days that week. And then it was about the youth, the voice of the youth and the um the natives, the originals. And that was just the first week. And then you kind of thought, oh, that's amazing, right? Then we went into the second week where it was around resiliency. And that's one thing that I want to say to all the people listening in here is that resiliency was a topic that we just for two, three years ago before COVID didn't really talk too much about. We didn't talk about, do I live a resiliency life? Do we have a resiliency policy in my city? Do I as a private sector company have a resiliency way of organizing and running my company? This is what we learned under COVID that we were not resilient. Cities was not resilient. Companies were not resilient. Families was not resilient. Nobody was resilient to deal with the COVID situation, right? So now we need to make sure that anything we do going forward, where we now build a new world around renewable or with the whole thing about um, uh, coming out of COVID, whatever thing it is around the 17 global goals, it always needs to be together with resiliency. So the second week, the first day, it was really about working with resiliency and understanding about resiliency and making sure that cities around the world have a way to be strong, no matter what would hit them, right? And then the Tuesday, the second week, we then went back in and then it was about the role of technology in the energy sector, the net zero world and the resilient world. And with I was a big applause for that. That Tuesday, it was also about gender equality and DNI. And that is very important to remember also, you can do really well on resiliency and net zero journey, but if you don't get a DNI right, right at the same time, you haven't really done what you're supposed to do. And we actually came out with some interesting stats there because we were running a huge DNI day at the Woodhouse, where we saw that if you go into the energy sector, there is the DNI data doesn't look that well. And the same thing with the transportation sector, and even in the renewable sector, uh, for semi women in leadership positions is super low. So we, we we need to make sure when we now do it right that we do the right the whole thing. And then we went into the Wednesday, uh, the second week, and that was all about transportation. And it was around transportation on air, sea, and lands. And then we, we went into the next day, which was a back into resiliency and CDS. And the whole two weeks, because next year it is in Egypt, uh, COP27, 
which I loved about COP and which is a learning, is a learning to every citizen in the world, every private sector, every government. Anything you come up with needs to be accessible, uh, affordable, and scalable for every single person. So that is what was incorporated into the Game Two Weeks. And then the last thing I want to say about it was that it was very solution oriented. People didn't come a pledge. People came with solutions. So I would say there's a lot of excitement coming out of COP and people are already planning COP27. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I think you repeated it and I want to repeat it again because I feel like it's so important, that notion of coming back to the energy transition. We need to make sure that what we're transitioning to is affordable, accessible and scalable in your words and tie in that notion of resiliency. Because if we don't do all of those, then it's not going to be enough. You know, one thing I was curious about, but you may have answered this for me already, is, you know, I think the skeptical reaction to COP26 and other gatherings is often, well, these pledges that are being made, it's really about marketing and public relations. And is there really going to be follow through? And it was good to hear you say that it was very solution oriented in terms of how are we going to get investment dollars flowing in? So, you know, I was wondering if might be able to go back to that piece of might have been day three or day four when, uh, you know, the investors were talking about how are we going to, you know, get investment dollars to the right projects. So it's not just about putting out a nice public relations release, but it's really about funding and investing in the technologies that are going to help us deal with the problem. So first of all, and I have been to many cups and many general sampling and many similar situation during the last many years. I think that COVID have learned the world to do really public-private partnerships and work extremely fast together, right? And I think that because COVID became personal to all of us, that I think a lot of people have been in lockdown for months and have felt that they couldn't do too much, right? And that fear people have inside themselves. So the whole thing about just coming to COP and do a pledge, there was nothing of that stuff. Everything was like, this is what I can do. This is my solution. Nobody went to COP, which was fascinating. And because we did 100 events in the Woodhouse, I mean, I, I just saw it with all the partners. Nobody came to COP alone. Nobody had an event alone talking about what we can do. Everybody came together and said, okay, what are you bringing? What are you bringing? How can we tie it together? What can we build? You're the investment side. You're the technology side. You sit in the CD. Everybody came together in a public-private partnership setting with solutions. And it was a lot about sharing. And it was a lot about uh, sharing with others so others can do the same. Like, you know, in the old days, we could hold on to things. We didn't want to share competition and stuff like this. No, no. Everybody was, it's all about time. It's all about speed. Everybody talked about speed, speed, speed. How fast can we implement this? You saw the behavior from the investment world. And that's what I love, what was brilliant about how COP put, put that agenda together. That Because, you know, if, if you take the investment, like realign the capital for the new world, if you do that the last day, then every day up to people are coming up with all different kinds of great ideas, but I have no idea how we're going to fund it, right? But bringing that up front in the agenda was just smart to do because then you took that out of the equation. We kind of know there's money coming in. Let's now talk about solution, how to implement so I think that I've never seen anything be so solution oriented before. And after COP, we are already working, you know, 
And another thing I also saw, there was a lot of agreements done. I mean, remember people haven't seen each other for two years. A lot of people use this to physical meeting, announcement, agreements, uh, you know, let us do this. And we are seeing the same momentum now uh, leading up to World Economic Forum, which is in one month and one week in, in Davos, or anything else that leading up, you know, into 2022. And what I love about the whole thing, people are already starting planning COP27, right? Because, and, and everybody's like, no, 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 we are, we're going to make sure that what we promised, we are going to really implement going forward. And it's very clear that you're an unabashed supporter and enthusiastic advocate for the UN and this sort of you know global collaboration. I've heard you say before, uh, metaphorically, that you work for the UN in terms of what you're doing. To those who are skeptical about the UN and these types of you know processes, how would you explain your passionate support? Where does it come from? What do you what do you see that others may not? I think first of all, we all need to understand the role we have to play. And you can say, UN, they gather uh, all the member states. Uh, so they have the voice of the world. During the last couple of years, uh, because of UN Global Compact, incredible success, you have so many private sector companies, member of UN Global Compact. And it, today it is the biggest private network of purpose companies coming together. So you have on one side with UN, you have like most countries in the world, coming together around the 17 global goals. And then on the other side, you have like most of the big companies and smaller companies around the world coming together around Purpose UN Global Compact. And they are then bridging together. And then you have like all the different UN departments that is working for some of you, whatever you work on the food side or you work on the climate side, what you're working on. And for me, this is like, you can say an overlaying you can say orchestration of purpose, bringing forces going forward in incredible collaboration because what you have around UN, you have a huge amount of universities, you have the startup ecosystem, you have accelerators, you have investors. So for me, the UN is like a body to like orchestrate. And that's, that's when people kind of ask questions into UN. UN's role, for me, they are the highest nominator in the world around purpose. There's no doubt about that. And they orchestrate from, you can say, from more like from government leaders to CEOs down to cities, countries, underground, all around the world. UN have people who are working together and that is what exciting for me around UN. There's no doubt about it. Nobody can do anything alone. So that's the reason why when I say I work for UN, even though I work for Wood PLC, is that you contribute. It's like I always say, what do I have in my backpack? When I worked for SAP, I had technology in my backpack. Now I work for Wood. I have engineering uh, consulting skills in my backpack, right? So what what are you contributing with to a higher nominator, which is what UN is orchestrating. And that is getting more and more clear as we we saw the COP where you, you had um, Gonzalo and Nigel representing uh, the race to resilient and race to net zero, and you had the whole UN body, right? And around the UN body, the blue and green zone, you then had the whole private sector countries coming together with a very clear agenda. And this is where you can move mountains. And that's the role of UN. And I always say when you, when you first get touched by UN and you begin to understand that, that you are here in the world to contribute to something which is much bigger than yourself, right? 
to make something much better that was here when you came to the world, you begin to understand the role of you in. And I, I'm deeply respectful and thankful. Uh, and I and I think for people who haven't got into exploring the whole UN system, it, you begin to understand what your role is in life. Yeah, so I'm very dedicated, as you can hear, to this whole uh, whole thing. And that's wonderful. And thank you for sharing it. Really, you know, I think it it's wonderful and it connects through switching gears a little bit, but I think it's all part of the pattern. Another passion of yours, I think, is the idea of innovation with purpose. And it sounds like the UN and that collaborative, pragmatic, working together atmosphere is part of where you find, you know, purpose for your innovation and purpose for your life. And, you know, you did a TED Talk not too long ago where you talked about the importance of science fiction thinking as a way of freeing our imagination and creating that type of innovation. Could you share with us a little bit about what you mean by science fiction thinking and how you would see it applied, you know, now that you've got technology in your backpack to the energy transition and climate change? So I love history. And it's kind of funny because when I wrote the science fiction book, it actually became a history book. We went 100 years back in time. And for 100 years ago, uh, there were too many horses in New York City. And then you can ask yourself, but how do they solve that, right? And so you can say at any point of time in human history, we have been standing in front of huge challenges. And, and how do we as human beings uh, solve those huge challenges? We do it with innovation. And then you can always say, yeah, but the innovation you did for 100 years ago, 50 years ago, the innovation you do today doesn't have the same scale and impact. No, but at that time, it had the same impact. But I do think that we as people, because again, going back in history, when I joined technology for now 22, 23 years ago, it was a time where it was very much about optimization, efficiency, sustainability was not really even a topic we spoke about. And we use technology to drive, you know, consolidation of IT system and efficiency and digitalizing different industries and so on. And then... The whole movement came with the experience of technologies, which is around 10 years ago, and I, ha I had the opportunity to move to Silicon Valley. And, and this is where I begin to understand, this is where the design thinking movement started, that you were actually able to design crazy ideas, the technology is at hand, and you could do amazing stuff. But still, the whole sustainability was not even a conversation piece. It was just like rock and roll, cool top, cool things you could build, right? But there was still this world where you need to make sure you were efficient and you had Six Sigma Lean and, and some of you know those schools. So this whole thing about building like crazy ideas for a purpose for 10 years ago was not a topic at all. So when I began to work with UN and moved to New York, which is now, what is that, six years ago, I began to understand that the reason, and that's what the book talks about, the reason why you have a science fiction mindset. And if the fact that you have all those experiences technologies, of course, it's cool and great. And, and we all know all the horrifying science fiction moves and so on. But that's not going to build a better world. That's not going to create a sustainable world that is going to be better than the world that you came into when you arrived to this world. And that's where I learned, and it took me one year to write the book. I went to this whole, you know, Wow, now I get it. It's kind of like, okay, you have this expensive technologies, uh, you have those huge challenges that the Seven Global Goals talks about, 
And you have this, I call it the la-la land. I actually, I actually, since you spoke last time, I moved to L.A. For me, I see uh, L.A., I live here in Hollywood, and I see the whole film industry, which is, is the la-la land. That's the mindset, the science fiction mindset, together with experiential technologies. So when we speak, up, speak about climate change, when we speak about digitalizing the whole energy sector, this is not a linear journey. It's not like we, we just change a little bit. We're talking about fundamental change, right? How do you do fundamental change? You come up with new ideas. How do you come up with new ideas? By letting your imagination accelerate. And it's kind of interesting where you are here in, in LA. We were on a trip yesterday and there's a lot of oil here in California, right? And uh, so at one hand, you see crazy windmill parks and you see, you know, all different new ideas about renewable and so on. But on the other hand, you also see the old world you know, with, with the oil pumps and so on, right? So you can say we live in a world, also if you look at resilience in the infrastructure, you, you you saw the whole Tesla movement and what is happening. Some of those ideas, where do they come from? A lot of the ideas you can see in the science fiction. And that's what the book talk about, like Star Trek, the flip phone. I mean, ideas that came up, I even came back and the book could talk about child toppling in 1928 or... So there's an interesting thing, and, and this is why I wrote the book, but what I realized, and it was a journey when I wrote the book, I didn't know what the end result of the book would be, that it actually came out that science fiction is for the time we live in today to come up with solutions to solve the biggest issues of the world. That is what people also call scenario planning, right? Science fiction thinking is what we need now. We love the movies, but we so much need that science fiction thinking. And it's, I'm happy that you bring it up because I think I was a little bit ahead of my time when I came out with the book. But now more and more people are coming to me and speaking to me about the science thinking mindset, because for some people, it is too crazy. But crazy is good. People realize that crazy is needed now. And that's the reason why my prediction have always been why I live in LA now that, you know, you, New York is amazing. It's the purpose place. UN is their headquarter. But California and the La La Land and the mindset, that's what we need now to be able to build crazy solutions uh, to solve the 17 global goals. And it's like, you go back to Steve Jobs, right? Here's to the crazy ones. Like that's what creativity looks like, especially if it's a, a few steps ahead of the rest of us. You reminded me a little bit uh, talking about history with, you know, I think it was Henry Ford who said if he had asked people what they needed, they would have told him a faster horse. So with the science fiction thinking, it's kind of like, instead of making marginal changes, optimizing the current system, let's take a step back, look at a white sheet of paper and free our minds and try to be creative without the necessarily the constraints of where we are right now. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, Bobby Kennedy's line about, you know, some people see the world the way it is and ask why, some see the way it could be and ask why not. Um, and it sounds like that's a, a similar type of thinking which I'm sure we could all use more of today. While I have you, though, I have to ask you, was there a, a particular science fiction book or group of books that had a big impact on you as a kid? Is this a long-running passion, or is this something that you came into? It is something I came into because, I mean, I've always been ahead of my time, and Silicon Valley is a place of what I call public-private partnership. You just know, you just learn how to do open collaboration, right? And then I found out, of course, it doesn't not just happen in Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley mindset have been exported to the world, right? So that's Innovation 2.0. Innovation 2.0 is that we don't just do innovation for the sake of innovation, we do it for purpose. And Innovation 4.0 is really 
we need a science fiction mindset to help us. But how did I get to Innovation 4.0? And that is a movie. And I just want to say it straight up, and I might disappoint people out there, is that I was not a science fiction fan at all. I actually thought it was, it, no, it was not for me at all. But I'm always like, I see patterns, right? I see patterns, and then I begin, that's also how I've been writing books. Suddenly, oh, there's something going on here. I need to get down on a piece of paper. So I was invited to go to Europe for a talk on Industry 4.0 uh, with Sophia the Robot and a couple of more people. And that was all fine. You know, I tried that before. That was okay. And then I came back to New York and my husband had put on uh, Westworld. And it was the original Westworld for 1972. It was not the new one. And this is the reason why I always say that Hollywood always know things ahead of the time because they just came out at that time and with a new one on HBO. But we saw the one for 1972. And the same week, because I'm out of Singularity University, I was going to Singularity University event in New York. So I was like, I was just on a panel with, with Sophia the Robot. I just saw Westworld for 1972. And I was talking about the idea about science fiction at Singularity University. And I was like, what is going on here? How could there be a movie in 1972 and you have Sue the Rupert coming months later and there's something going on. So with my team, at, when I was at SAP in New York, where I was running a huge innovation space at Hudson Yard, I remember I came into the office in the morning and I said, okay, listen here, I'm so sorry. This is what we're going to do this week. We're going to see maximum science fiction movies. We're going to see if we can find correlations between things that exist today, like new inventions. And we blow our mind what we found out, what we saw. And then, because we run a lot of meetups at the space, I said, let us now, we have no idea if anybody's coming. We throw up on meetup.com, we call it Science Fiction Effect. And we had no idea who was coming, but it was interesting who came. Science fiction writers, people who love science fiction, you know, startups, all different kinds of people came. And we began to have those conversations about what is happening here. Why did you come up with that idea? Were you inspired by a science fiction movie? What was going on? So it's kind of like a research lab. You're running for one year. And that was where I wrote the book. So I would say Westworld was the tipping point where I was sitting and I did not even like the movie, right? I was like, you know, I was sitting and watching and said, what's going on here? Why did they know, right? And so that was how it came around. That's a great story. And so I love the idea that, you know, you ran a research lab on science fiction and talked to authors and, you know, you've connected these patterns of the types of thinking and then where it leads. So when I look at a lot of the science fiction today, a lot of it seems to have a, a rather dystopian bent to it. Should that be a cause for concern in terms of, you know, where that may be leading or where our creativity and our imagination is bending right now? So what was a surprise to me was that in this lab, we then started doing a lot of science fiction uh, workshops. And you will always think that, okay, who's coming to those workshops, right? Uh, this is the new cool agile companies. No, no, no. It was actually older companies, solid old companies. And I found very quickly out that a lot of people have a sci-fi insight themselves. So it gave them the opportunity in a corporate setting. And that's the reason why the book that I wrote is for the corporate world. It is to take like, imagine you went into the boardroom and said, I saw Star Trek yesterday, Star Trek yesterday, and I think what we need to do is this. 
They will throw you out of the boardroom. Not today, because it's more acceptable today. So what I tried to do with the book was to say, how do I make it okay to use science fiction in a totally normal corporate culture, right? And not make it too fluffy out there. So the book also have like, you know, how do I do a time traveling workshop where we time travel into 2050 and to 2030. And what is interesting about this yet, this book came out in 2020 and it was just before companies begin to do their net zero 2050 target and goals. If you just go two years back before the whole net zero race, right? Very few companies gave pledges and target on 2050 goals, right? You didn't do that. Or even you saw a cup, you go even further into the future. This has become normal. Then you can ask, that is interesting because that is exactly what the book talks about. But that is a science fiction mindset because nobody knows how technology look in 2050. We're talking about digitalizing the whole energy sector. Nobody knows how it looks in 2050, but you're still there to make a target for 2050. And that is exactly what the book talk about. Book talk about, let me take you to the uh, back to the future, you know, into the future, right? Let me bring you into 2050 and then begin to make a plan back to today. You know how you want it to be, how it looks today. And that is exactly every single of the biggest company in the world today, they have a 2050 golden in their statement of their company, right? If you go into the vision statement, there's a 2050 goal and many companies there are 2040. That is a science fiction mindset. They might not call it that, but that is exactly where we're heading with it. Because how will you know, but you dare to target up against it, right? Absolutely. And that's what I wanted to ask you just as we, you know, wrap up, you've been so generous with your time. You know, some examples of, of people implementing or companies implementing that science fiction mindset. It sounds like when you have to think about a path to 2050 and becoming net zero over the course of 30 years, that's going to require a science fiction mindset. Are there any, you know, little takeaway examples of companies that are doing this that you've worked with? Or do you see, uh, like if, if a company wanted to embrace this type of thinking, what do you think is the best way for them to get started? So first of all, it is so interesting you ask that question because I actually never been asked that question at this time right now. We is like the perfect time to give this reply. I think for a few months ago, before COP actually, you, you will take the classical companies like Tesla and, or simpler companies that, that literally are changing the entire, entire industries. And, and you have those companies who have done this but it's actually, there has been a tipping point with COP26 because companies have been preparing for COP26 by pledging and by giving those targets that what they want to reach by 2050. Countries have done the same thing, right? And that means that you actually are without, maybe they haven't even put word on themselves, the companies, but hundreds and hundreds of companies have been placed up against 2050 now, right? That is a science fiction move. It is. And of course, they've been building plans. Maybe not, nobody can build a solid plan because you can't do that because you, there's so much you don't know, right? But of course, there is a high-level plan about how to reach 2050. So I would actually go away from just giving the classical examples that we all know really well who have, who have changing industries. 
to, I would actually say there's been a turning point with COP26 where companies without really maybe thinking too much about it have been giving those targets, have, have pledged up against this. And because they've done that, they're now building those plans to be able to reach the 2050, including countries. So I think there's a tipping point now that whatever you call it, scenario planning is science fiction thinking, that is actually something that companies are incorporating with maybe without knowing it, but instead of just doing a three years plan or five years plan, of course, that kind of planning is still happening. They actually are daring now because they need to, and they feel responsible to do so. They are doing those plans going forward. And that is actually, actually, I haven't reflected on it as I do right now, very, very exciting. Because one thing I would like to say to you is that Every company that is a member of your global compacts who have placed up against 1.5, that is public available information, right? You can go in and you can see it. Every company that placed up against COP26 is public available information. Every country have done the same thing. And nobody's going to leave that pledge. Nobody's going to say, oh, I'm not going to do 1.5. No, no. They're going to be measured up against this every single year going forward. So there's no return here, right? There's no like, okay, I'm stepping out. Nobody can step out of this. So I actually think the whole world is actually on a huge science fiction scenario journey where we, in a collective way, and Bill Gates talked about it so well. He talked about this is the biggest, most impressive time we live in right now for human history for innovation. We are going to innovate things that is going to be so huge, so big, and we can because we do have the technology. And I see that the investment world are helping us in this, right? Uh, so anybody who is into science fiction, innovation, it is a really interesting time to live in right now. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week. Thank you.